SequelCast 2 and Friends is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, go to greenlitpodcast.com. My job is to keep you alive until you die. Do you understand that? Ah! Spring break! After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sounds are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello, and welcome to Sequel Cast 2 and Friends, a podcast looking at moves in a franchise. One at a time. Uh, this time around, we are taking uh, dipping our toe into the DCEU with uh, the Suicide Squad duology. In this episode, we're looking at the first one called Suicide Squad. Came out in 2016, written directed by David Ayer, and uh, this is the one with Will Smith in it. If you have trouble telling the difference between this one and its sequel, which we'll talk about next week, the Suicide Squad. Um, I recall uh, with me is Thrasher. Would you live for me? And uh, Alex. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you see somebody crying on the side of the road talking to their sword, it means the soul of their loved one is trapped inside. Show some compassion. Maybe give them some money. Maybe give them some blade oil so the, the sword yes. doesn't rust. It can really affect the uh, the vocal qualities of um, people possessed in swords. Clearly, uh, yeah. And, you know, we're talking about Suicide Squad and uh, the first one. And I, I seem to recall, Thrasher, correct me if I'm wrong, but way, way back when we discussed the uh, original f- or the four or five Batman films, the ones with Michael Keaton, Val Kilmer and so on. I think we had an open ended discussion, like if you could do any comic book into a movie, what would you do? And you mentioned Suicide Squad. And now we've had like two in the space of five years. Yeah, it's it's a a real monkey's paw of a situation. On, on, on the one hand, I'm I'm happy they did it, if only because at least in the comics, the the Suicide Squad comics have always been a really fun way to explore lesser known characters and to sort of re- like re- really get into what makes them tick. And in the movies, it's 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 a lot of blustery hoopla. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I don't I'm not really familiar with these comics. I, the first time I heard about them is when you, we talked about them on the the original sequel cast. Oh, I mean, probably like ten years ago at this point. And I think it's a difficult idea to sell and describe to people. It's a bit convoluted, but I do like the idea that it's a team of bad guys. I always found in, in comics and uh, in movies the bad guys to be more interesting than the good guys. And yet they, you try and have your cake and eat it, too, because it's like, well, they're not that bad because they want to save the world, sort of, I guess. And it it I don't know, it feels like this should be like kind of mean and nastier. The original director's cut uh, from David Ayer has not come out and he's been whining about it on Twitter because, you know, enough fans complaining caused the um, Snyder cut of Justice League to come out, which we'll cover at some other point. So, yeah, there's a big story behind all this. Um, well, well, I think that's why it works in the comics is that it gives you a chance to find the humanity in these characters. But in in this movie, no one character gets enough screen time to have their humanity explored. 
the X-Men movies have the same problem. It's you have a big team. Who do you spend time with? And uh, Alex, what are some thoughts about this? Did you, did you uh, know the comics beforehand or? I was aware of them and um, I always thought it was a cool idea because I think like I don't traditionally go for I don't like typically go for like traditional like, you know, heroics. Like I don't get all Mm. excited for like the likes of, you know, Captain America and Iron Man. My favorite, you know, comic book character is freaking, you know, uh, Punisher. And, you know, he's barely a good Mm -hmm. guy. He's just a guy who shoots people. Um, Well, he kills people many different ways more than just shooting. But um, yeah, so the concept of like, hey, let's root for the bad guys, you know, that that that, that's something that warms up that 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 I warm up to. I think that's something that I can get behind. Um, But what you what are you going to have these bad guys do? That's that's the main question. You know what I mean? And it's that kind of like it's that weird, like moral qualifier thing. It's like, okay, they're bad dudes. They've killed everyone, men, women and children, you know, but like, oh, they'll save a kitty. So they're 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 deep down. They're good. You know, it's I think think that that's a problem and it's not a problem exclusive to this film but the the filmmakers don't seem to understand how to distinguish between an evil person and a criminal many evil people are criminals but very few criminals are evil people all you Mm. have to do to be a criminal is break a law and that's very easy to do right yeah that's i like that you you said that it's there's a lot of meat to this concept. I, I think you could really do it as a TV show better with all these characters. Make it like uh, I don't know. The A team isn't really a great example, but you know, just make it where Something you can flesh out those lines. Though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can like you know flesh out these people and have maybe uh, character focused episodes and so forth. And well, you know, it's fu- it's funny you mentioned that. But on uh, the TV show uh, Arrow, part of the 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 broader uh, television DC continuity. This uh, in, so this came out in 2016 in 2015, a big story arc in that season of arrow involved the suicide squad. And apparently the reason they did that is that the people at DC and Warner brothers were like, Hey, can you, can you kind of juice the audience for and like prep them for the whole concept of a suicide squad and just make that a big thing in your show. And and they did. It actually had they had some fun characters in their version of the suicide squad. Yeah, see, and it's you, one of those things where like you're So we didn't get our TV version. <laughs> I haven't seen it. I I'm, I should check that out. Um and I think the thing with that one of the problems here is that like they're assembling a team and doing all this other shit, but what they're also doing is that they're kind of establishing like a hierarchy of like bad guyness, you know, you've got like Marco Robbie, who's like not, she's kind of like a, almost like a victim as much as she is a criminal. You've got uh, Deadshot, who's like an assassin. He goes by a code, you know, he has rules. And then you've got like El Diablo, who's like, we don't know much about him, except that he's just like a bad dude. He's a bad hombre, which is like kind of stereotypical borderline racist. Um, and I think in establishing the hierarchy, you're not establishing characterizations in contrast, but you're just kind of like making these like, artificial constructs that the we're trying to like you know persuade the audience to feel one way or the other about these characters when in fact it doesn't do much at all all right i'm glad i'm glad you brought up harley quinn because harley quinn in every incarnation has been a fascinating character and she's also one of the rare dc characters that began outside of the comics and became so big they then became part of the comics oh and Uh, and bruce tim one of the co-creators of her has written comics uh but yeah i mean yeah she made her debut in the batman the animated series and 
is clearly, you know, this is a breakout star role for, um, is it pronounced Margot Robbie? That's how I assume it's Margot Robbie. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, um, well, just for a sec, right when you said, I'm glad you brought that up, you cut out for a sec. So I kind of missed that. Oh, just the, just the, that she's a character uh, with legs that's really moved around. And one of the things that she she's had two main origin stories. There's the original classic origin story. Uh, and then there's the, the more modern origin story, which is the one that this movie leans leans into, which sadly I feel is a mistake because what, what gives the character her humanity in the animated version is that she's essentially a person who makes who consistently makes bad choices. She's a right. court-appointed therapist who falls in love with her patient, her patient being the Joker, and then ends up, you know, joining him on a series of crime sprees. Whereas in this one, she's a, you know, she chooses to bust him out of Arkham because she loves him. That is a bad and deliberate choice. But in this movie, she falls in love with the with the Joker and they imply that she might help him break out, but then he kidnaps her, gives her electroshock therapy, and then dumps her in a vat of chemicals, meaning he made her crazy. So the things she does, it's not because of choices she has made, and that really weakens the character in this narrative. Yeah, well, and also, too, it's like, so what did she fall in? Like a thing of freaking, like, you know, white skin toner like well i think that's supposed to be the same vat of ace chemicals from the tim burton batman movie yeah, which i guess no, they right. just left out there <laughs> that, that's what i was thinking i sort of like that it i mean that's the, the imagery from the batman 1989 with joker falling into the vat and that they redo it with harley quinn is i like that visual but i also feel like with um with Joker, I mean, Joker literally got his own movie and he's getting more. Uh, and, and Harley Quinn, that whole origin thing should have been its own kind of Bonnie and Clyde spinoff. And I, I think part why the Suicide Squad is kind of catnip for, for movie executives is because you're everyone wants to be like the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe and have a gazillion spinoffs and of, of movies and TV shows and things. And Suicide Squad, each of the characters, I assume, is rich enough or could be made so that you could have a gazillion spinoffs um, oh, if yeah. they pop. And, you know, you, you had uh, Birds of Prey was a spinoff of this and all that kind of stuff. So, Which we will not be talking about because that is more of a spinoff and less of a sequel. Uh, correct. Doesn't mean we could not cover it in the future, but yeah, not immediately. In the immediate, we're doing Suicide Squad and Suicide Squad... Uh, these were confusingly like, named me. sequels. I hate when they do that. Like Fast and the Furious did this, where I think the first one is called the Fat or Fast and Furious, and one of the sequels is called The Fast and the Furious. Or it, it's just it's it's nonsense. And yeah, I hope they continue. Just call it the yeah. same name as the first one. I hope they continue the trend. If there's a third movie, I hope it's called The The Th Suicide Squad. <laughs> <laughs> Just just number things for Christ's sakes, all right? Just put, a, just put a question mark at the end. Suicide Squad. <laughs> <laughs> Look who's suicide squatting to. They just <laughs> pluralize yeah. it more. Suicide Squad. The Suicide Squads is. <laughs> is it three? All um, right. So, do you notice that this movie has three first acts? Well... <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned that, Thrasher. I'd like to, to point out the director, David Ayer, has been very public with his complaints as I was kind of pinched in the beginning. But um, a 
cut of the movie he came out with, uh, the rough cut had a kind of screening that didn't go so well, and um, the, the hits on the trailer online were so big, they used, this, they used the same people that did the trailer house just to re-edit the whole film. And David Ayer did not have director's cut on this, so he couldn't overwrite it. And yeah. uh, apparently his cut had no pop music. Uh, it didn't have any of those text things that show up that say, like, favorite fetish is a pink unicorn it's or so whatever stupid. it says. I hate that. Oh. Yeah. And um, a yeah, lot you, of stuff was can, reshot. It's apparently darker, feel, rated R. You can feel the rift between what David Ayer was trying to do and what the editing house was ordered to do by the studio. But this is what kind of kills me, though, sometimes, is that, like, there's this, like, instant authorship of directors, especially when it comes to properties such as Suicide Squad or Justice League or whatever. And it's that there's, like, this, like, release the air cut. It's like, I like David Ayer. Um, but he's only directed a few films. He's not freaking Francis Coppola already. You know what I mean? Like, there's this kind of like, sense of like, right. it's not this great author of cinema. Yeah, he's a very talented screenwriter and a pretty good director. But let's face it, he's only made, what, two feature films prior to The Suicide Squad? I think, what was it? Fury um, and um, uh, something else, I forget. End of Watch. More than that, but like, they're, they're sort of like smaller things. I don't think people would have seen like Harsh Times, Street Kings, uh, End of Watch. I heard that one's pretty good. And to watch this, uh, like I wanted to see it. Uh, Fury, I liked actually quite a bit. I mean, and in the screenplay, to Training Day and Dark Blue, which is a good flick. But um, yeah, it's it's also this thing too, where if I directed a movie and it turned out to be a pile of shit, I'd probably be like, oh, that's not what I intended. It's the studio's fault. Ah, yeah, they ruined my vision. Um, but hey, maybe the air cut is a totally different film, and it's a undiscovered masterpiece for all I know. I don't know. I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's not in the version we saw was the theatrical version, which is on um, HBO as of this recording. The extended version, uh, which I haven't seen, is 10 minutes longer, but it's still not a director's cut, apparently. Right. And, and the novel is supposed to, the novelization, uh, which they, they did kind of surprisingly for this movie, is supposed to be um, closer in tone. And the Joker uh, allegedly had a lot more to do in the third act of the film instead mm. of, yes, and that pissed off Jared Leto. I mean, you know, there was a lot of, this was not an easy shoot from everything I, I've researched about it. Yeah, and, yeah it was definitely problematic. And yet this made a lot of money. This off a budget of oh, yeah. $175 million, uh, but worldwide box office was 746 million um this did better than justice league right <laughs> so it, it it's really quite something i think a big part of that is uh harley quinn being yeah. everywhere the merchandising for this there, there's the one poster it looks like a cereal box with all these neon colors and and uh lest we forget this movie won an oscar for best mm. makeup and hairstyling at the 89th academy awards it, this it is academy out. award-winning suicide squad it beat out uh, Star Trek uh, Beyond, which, despite all its flaws, had amazing makeup. Right, right. And that's what's uh, <laughs> that's what kind of kills me, though. The like hairstyle and makeup and stuff like for Harley Quinn is awesome. Um, I think a lot of the visual effects emphasis, though, was on like uh, Croctron or whatever his name is. And maybe it's just because I have like trypophobia and like tumorous, scaly wholly perforated looking things just make 
my skin crawl, but I just didn't like looking at him. It just kind of made me uneasy, and I didn't like it. So I guess I guess that's a testament to the effectability of the hair makeup is that it actually you know triggered a psychological issue I have. <laughs> what well, it is interesting because like like Killer Killer Croc, you would expect that character to just be completely like motion captured CGI, but I got to give him credit for coming up with full body makeup for that character. Yeah, it definitely did look interesting. I think like there's a lot there's a lot of problems here and I think uh I think I know we discussed this off mic. The ridiculous amount of needle drops in this film <laughs> are ridiculous. I paused it within 4 minutes. We already had three hit songs like Sympathy for the Devil, Wu-Tang, something else I remember. I, I can't remember. It was just relentless. Well, it opens with House of the Rising Sun, which yes. thematically does not work. It just has does that not. certain sound. Okay, but I am so glad you you mentioned Sympathy for the Devil uh because th- there's a a bit um Matt Besser from the Upright Citizens Brigade, he used to have a, a bit where he's like asking somebody their favorite Rolling Stones song. And if they and if they respond with sympathy for the devil, he goes, Sympathy for the devil? Man, that's the kind that's the song a cop would pick. And he's not wrong. <laughs> when I think of sympathy for the devil, I think of the needle drop that's very cheesy at the end of interview with a vampire. Well, one, that's a Guns N' Roses oh, yeah, cover, and it's pretty cool. But two, it actually works coming off the end of that film, especially with uh, Lestat showing back up. It's a bit literal, I guess. But, I mean, every drop here is just something you've heard a million times before. If they were deep cuts, like, I, I like a good needle drop like anyone else, but it's shoving them constantly down oh, the throat yeah. where you, oh. you can't. Breathe and and I mean this is certainly where the the trailer house that did the editing and I, I mean I think that's pretty unusual I could be wrong I, I don't know I'm just a fan it's but. like when your annoying friend is is sent to pick out uh, music or something and they don't find anything they like so you just hear like the first twenty seconds of a bunch of good songs you're like oh, okay first twenty seconds of stones oh. seconds of the animals it's like just pick a fucking song or, or <laughs> right. even worse like, oh I, I made a mashup yeah yeah exactly or, or even worse the same two songs from the same album but they're the two songs that are getting constant radio play yeah exactly but okay so the so the needle drops we could talk about that that could be a podcast on its own and if y'all want to do a spinoff suicide sounds talk to me we'll do it but um i I just want to point out so their big needle drop when killer croc is introduced is credence clearwater revival an amazing band and it's fortunate son which one that's the cheap needle drop for vietnam but two, yeah, Forrest Gump says hello. Yeah, but but two, Creedence Clearwater Revival has a song called "Born on the Bayou," all about living and hunting in a swamp, which is Killer Croc's mo. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Now I will admit I mean, that song, more sense. that song was already used as the theme song for Swamp Thing Two, directed by Jim Wynorski. But come on. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, fortunate son, like, is this a Vietnam movie? Is there something about Killer Croc I don't know? Is he the fortunate son of someone? I don't I don't get it. Or is he, like, the fortunate son of society, man? So some of the actors in, in this we, we've talked about before in the sequel cast. Will Smith, we talked about way back on the Men in Black films. Um, and to see him in, in an ensemble movie like this, 
is kind of unusual. Mostly everything Will Smith is in nowadays is a, a star vehicle for him, or he's clearly the lead. Well, that was mm. happening at the time because, like, because like not too long before this, there was Kick Ass Two, which had Jim Carrey in the middle of a big ensemble. You're right. Yeah, and he typically does star vehicles as well. Uh, Jim Carrey doing a Stallone imitation as um, I don't remember the name. A Captain Stars and Stripes. Thank you, Captain <laughs> Stars and Stripes. <laughs> Which is also uh, funny because, uh, speaking of Jim Carrey, it feels like Jared Leto, Mr. Method Actor, is doing nothing but really a Jim Carrey impression for most of this. Nice, also, nice transition. Yeah, The Joker remember? is a role actors like. And when that first picture leaked of him, or not leaked, but they just released it of him as the Joker with all the tattoos and his, his mm-hmm. teeth and, and everything... Like it's, I appreciate it. It's a different kind of look. Um, it's it's creepy and still photographs. But then the way the character is is acted, it to me just falls a bit flat. Like I could see some of the Jim Carrey thing, but Jim Carrey I think would make it, especially how his acting has improved uh, nowadays, um, could make it creepy or disturbing or something. And being the first Joker after uh, on the silver screen in live action after Heath Ledger is quite the uh quite the move yeah oh i remember go on okay i remember when like like you said the the picture leaked and the trailer came out and the trailers were very joker heavy like this was it felt like this movie was going to be the joker and the suicide squad you know what i mean Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and i admit like it was a different they they did a different thing with the joker you know instead of because like with heath ledger and uh jack nicholson these looked like physically imposing dudes like these like heath ledger's joker looked like a guy that could pick you up and kick the shit out of you um and then you kind of see this like you know wiry dude looks like someone you'd see with like a freaking you know hoodie and a baseball bat i'm like all right you know you're doing a different thing movie but i'll 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 buy it you know this could be cool you know having kind of like this wiry looking dude um you know trying to be a little more gritty you know but the thing is is that they're doing this thing and it's like with the uh, yakin phoenix joker is that it's we're it's like hey we're gonna take joker but we're gonna project all of our you know scary neuroses on it we're gonna make him like this dahmer-esque juggalo serial killer like the joker can't be everything you know what i mean well, I think part part of it is it seemed like they were trying to get back to the classic crown clown prince of crime, where he's he's effectively just a a, a, a gangster with a lot of like gimmicks. Yeah. But then somebody realized that gangster sounds a lot like gangsta, and like, well, what if we try to make him like a modern criminal? Yeah. But as a result, he's become a weird composite of the kind of modern criminals that only really exist in movies. Hence, right. all the weird tattoos and and. And, and what? Oh, and did, and did, if you're going to make a gangsta with the A, God, I hate that pronunciation of it. Um, <laughs> why not go for a, a person of color or something? Make make the Joker black. Do something like yeah, sure. Really, really push it. Like instead, it, it looks like kind of. I mean, I don't know. I'm in a weird territory, but like white people have tattoos too. But it's just the or make a Joker prison movie. I don't know. Like there's some interesting ideas in this but it's it's how they how they do it that they kind of minimize the presence of of the joker uh piss the actor off as as i already said and also he was supposed to get his own movie but instead they did the joker with um uh, joaquin phoenix so yeah 
another movie I'm not too wild about either, but no, uh, won't even get to that now. Another thing that's that's weird, but you said weird about the Joker. So you, you you mentioned that he that he comes off as kind of like a '90s Jim Carrey, and he does when he's being big. When he's being small, he's coming off like '90s Paul Giamatti. Have you noticed that? I I see that. Yeah, the um the overemphasis of the some of the words and then the hand gestures almost nebbish uh i think why don't we get into the i mean we've been talking here um, quite a bit about the characters because this movie has a lot of characters but why don't we talk about kind of the plot it, which has big problems one of which is it takes half the movie until the whole crew comes together and is assigned a mission which is way too long well, this is, and I mentioned like it has three first acts. This is a side effect of it having three first acts. Um, you know, we all the characters are sort of in, introduced uh, as part of like Amanda Waller's big government file, but then all the characters are introduced in these flashbacks with uh, DC heroes sometimes, and then the characters are introduced again in prison, and we get a we get their backstory and power set repeated three times for no reason. <laughs> Because it looks cool. I don't... <laughs> and, just, and the thing is, like, those things where they would pause and, like, they would have that, like, data come across the screen, that could have worked, one, if they did it every time. They're very inconsistent on when they do it. And two, if they just had better jokes. Like, the only one that I think really landed is when they had uh, Deadshot, Will Smith is as Deadshot, when they have him and it's like lethal with the following things. And it's just this endless scroll of weapons and mundane items he can kill people with. That was good. But then when it's Captain Boomerang and it's like, uh, and Fetish, pink unicorns, that is such a tacked on detail and him carrying around that pink unicorn. I kept waiting for that to pay off. I kept waiting to find out, like, that's a gift he's trying to give to his daughter, although I guess with, with Deadshot and his daughter, they've already got a thing. Or, like, that's the only thing he has from the only person who ever truly loved him, and that's why he's so precious with it. For those character introductions with the text, What I think what keeps them from working is, one, they're not at all consistent. Some characters get those freeze frames with the explicatory text, and some don't. Uh, but two, like it need they need better gags for them if we're supposed to read them and also find them in, uh, fun and entertaining in their own right. Like the only one that really works is Will Smith's Deadshot, where you know it has his name and then it has like he's lethal with the following weapons, and it's just an endless list of weapons, which includes several yeah. like mundane items. But then we get to like Captain Boomerang, and and it has a fetish pink unicorns uh which one it, they never have a fetish for anyone else but two the pink unicorn i kept waiting for that to to be part of that character's humanity strangely enough out of all of the characters in this movie he doesn't get any kind of like character moments and the pink unicorn it's just something that we always see him tucking into his coat for some reason i kept waiting for that to turn out to be a gift he's trying to get to his daughter even though deadshot and his daughter already have a whole character development thing there or that like that was a gift that like the last person who truly cared about him gave him and that's why it's so precious to him yeah or but no it's like just this goofy out. thing like a fake out or something like here's like the you know arc stone or something and then he hands that to the bad guy instead and it's like ha ha you know what i mean like it it <laughs> never never comes up oh and that's another thing i i think 
and, and this, I think we can lay at the feet of David Ayer's script. Um, but this, uh, who, who I would ask you to, who is the, the villain in this movie? Um, well, like the antagonist villain. I, the one they're actually fighting, I guess the brother of Enchantress. Incorrect. Uh, Matt. I would guess, um, Enchantress herself. Uh, also incorrect. And, but, and you both have made the same mistake the movie makes because the movie <laughs> seems to think that they're the antagonist as well, but they're not. The antagonist of this movie is Amanda Waller. Everything bad in this movie that happens that, that our protagonists have to deal with happens only because of a series of decisions that Amanda Waller has made. Yeah, I mean, that was interesting too because, um, I think out of everyone in the cast here, Margot Robbie, Amanda Wall, uh, Margot Robbie, Viola Davis, and um, Will Smith, I think, are doing the bulk of the heavy lifting. And I gotta um, say, Viola Davis flawlessly cast as Amanda Waller. Yeah. yeah, no, she's great, no nonsense, and you buy it too. She, you, do, you don't feel like she's putting on airs or anything. But again, it's kind Maybe of it. Is. Yeah, <laughs> love it. But it also it does just kind of feel like more of just like a mannerism, and I think that's another thing too is with like um, I don't want to derail the conversation, but yeah, it does. It just kind of seems like a little arbitrary. It's like I'm the bad no no nonsense character. Why? Because that's what the movie's telling me to do. Well, in fact, that's how a lot of stuff works in this movie, because the script says so, to the point where I would not be surprised if, if something inexplicable happened and a character just pulled out the script like a Muppet and said, oh, but the script says we're supposed to meet here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's just it is one of those things where I don't want to sound too like abrasive, but it's like, is David Ayer that great of a screenwriter? I mean, I know there's a lot of intervention. This is a massively compromised uh Massively compromised movie and production, but after a certain point, it's like, how many bad decisions can you lay at the feet of studio intervention and not just bad screenwriting? Well, speaking of bad screenwriting, uh, there was only six weeks available for David Ayer to write the script to begin with because the release Damn. date was already locked. And that's, uh, for those that don't know, that's not a lot of time. Usually no, they not. might take months or a few months or even years trying to, you know, craft the good, the perfect script because it's cheaper to, well, A, screenwriters aren't paid as much as directors. That's a whole other topic. But, um, that's why you, you know, both. it's much easier. Yeah. It's easier to change something uh, on the on the page, right, before you've hired all these actors and you're trying to change things on the set. And um, a good script is a good uh, blueprint. Yeah, film. I mean, I get six weeks to write a friggin' essay, you know what I mean, if that gives you <laughs> <laughs> right. like There are a number of things that another draft certainly, I, I think, would have improved. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and it just, it doesn't really feel like... It doesn't really feel like there's like an actual um, like the material could have been handled better, but also like the material's kind of hard and complex because you're doing a lot of different things. You're doing this end of the world scenario. You're doing this anti superhero, super anti hero thing, and you're trying to establish all these characters. You're keeping a bunch of stuff in the air. I mean, you know. And I think that's another mistake in this movie is that apparently the stakes are the whole world. Exactly. Uh, and and mm -hmm. and that and that creates two problems. One problem being, well, you've already established that Superman and Batman are a part of this, so why aren't they trying to stop the apocalypse? Uh, but but two, oh, and Wonder Woman for that matter. But yeah. but then then two, 
they the enchantress she creates like this big magic vortex so one we get another stereotypical the care the protagonists have to stop a sky laser type yeah. thing which is all which had already been done to death multiple times by in multiple films yeah. by this point although admittedly maybe it was a fresh idea with during that brief period where the script was written and david Ayer didn't, Ayer didn't have time to watch other movies so he didn't know it right. had been done but but two well, it's such a vague threat. Like, it's going to do something to the world. We never learn what. Is it going to destroy it? Is it going to remake it? Is it going to make everyone possessed by eyeball demons like the other people? Um, also, how long is it going to take? Is it going to go off in, like, a few minutes? Or is it going to go off in a few days? Yeah, and, like, the powers of these, like, soot zombies are kind of inconsistent. Like, some of them, like, have guns. Some of them, like, just attack you. Like, are they made out of ash or something? Oh, like, but, uh, is but it also, the body snatchers thing? Like, they're, they're less effective than just a regular human soldier, which right. is so ironic because there's this whole bit where Amanda Waller goes up on this whole speech about their combat capabilities, including they can take multiple shots to the head and still keep right. fighting like no one's laid a hand on them. But we know that's not true because we've seen them take take a single shot to the head and be instantly killed. Right. Or In fact, that's the way most of them man. die. Yeah, or or a baseball bat for that matter. You know what I mean? Like when your enemy can be bested by a by a thunk to the head, I, I don't think the enemy is too much of a problem. And, um, and I realize I'm not the first person to say this, but you know, it's Amanda Waller specifically cites. Well, what happens if the next Superman isn't on our side? We're going to need somebody to deal with them. Okay, so what is a woman with a baseball bat and a man with boomerangs going to do against an evil Superman? <laughs> Also, yeah. the, the the boomerang thing feels like um, I, I don't know what the lore in the comics are, but boomerang. I was like, is this like a Road Warrior reference? Because you know, remember the fail kid and Road Warrior has the boomerang, and the mm. character's Australian. So I'm like, ah, connection maybe. I don't know. Maybe actually, perhaps. no. Captain Captain Boomerang uh, pre uh, he he predates the Road Warrior by a significant no margin. Shit. Uh, yeah, he first appeared in Flash 117 in 1960 and was one of the and was pretty much Flash's uh, nemesis until they introduced uh, Reverse Flash, a.k.a. Professor That's Zoom, uh, a.k.a. a whole bunch of other names. <laughs> Love it. Excellent. Yeah, I was curious about that. Oh, some of the humor in this film, I think that does work, although the character is more there in the beginning, I think, than elsewhere is uh, Ike Barinholtz from Mad TV is uh, Captain Griggs. Oh, yeah. And he's typically oh. more of a comedic actor, and like the, I think that the jokes he does are, are kind of funny, and it was kind of a nice surprise to see him in this, because I wouldn't expect him to do that kind of the part in this sort of a movie. Well, I mean, yeah, I guess, he's... Um... You know, it's, it is actually funny because like, I don't believe he gets his comeuppance because the whole deal no. is like he's sort of an abusive prison guard. He he just puts – we see him putting most of these characters through some little little mundane hell and then trying to act like he's their buddy. Hey, remember when I got you that cookie when he like – when he right. – when, when the Joker finds out about his gam- – and that's the one bit of cleverness is when the Joker finds out about his gambling problems and so offers and, and, and cuts a deal with him to sneak a cell phone into Harley Quinn. That's, that's pretty clever. But you kept expecting that to sort of like him to come back in the third act and suffer some sort of ironic fate. But he doesn't. They just kind of forget about him. 
Yeah, there's a lot of time spent on establishing what a scumbag this guy is, and he's a piece of shit. So, like, it's evident they they really lay it on. Like you said, they really lay it on to the point where you think, like, oh, this guy's gonna get a freaking you know bat to the head or get shot in the dick or something like that. No, he's kind of, you know, maybe that's in the air cut. I don't know. But in terms of, um, I guess, like in terms of performances, I think like you know, um, yeah, Viola Davis is doing great. Um, I think Waste of Adam Beach is Slipknot. The man who didn't climb anything. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He is introduced so late in the game and then is immediately killed to prove that the neck bombs work. Yeah, the the escape from New York bombs. It is such a... It is such a... He is such a nothing character in this movie. I know, it's... uh, Like, if you want that moment to stick, have a neck bomb kill someone we care about. Yeah, that way we're like, oh shit! Like having I mean, killed but Captain also, Boomerang, especially since he's the right. one that doesn't believe they're real. Right, and also he's the one that's not that interesting. Oh, and speaking of the neck bombs, something that I did not notice until rewatching this for the show, it turns out the neck bombs are manufactured by Bruce Wayne's company, which seems very out of character for Bruce Wayne. I mean, that's a lethal, that's a technology that only has lethal and evil applications. Yeah, it's not like there's there's no other use for it. Like you couldn't like, you know, like mine with it or something. Well, well, it's not like, oh, we've invented these injectable uh, medical probes that could revolutionize surgery and cancer treatment. But then Amanda Waller found a way to weaponize them. No, this is just flat out a neck bomb factory. (laughs) The guy, Uh, the the scientist that the Joker kidnaps is on Bruce Wayne's payroll, making these (laughs) for Bruce Wayne who is presumably the same Bruce Wayne who also brands criminals so that they get murdered in prison? Yeah, interesting, right? Like, normally uh, I'm intrigued when, when there are ways that one movie connects to another very directly and narratively, but in this movie, but with the DC movies, the connections are always increasingly baffling and incomprehensible. Yeah. Connections. Joker is kind of the ultimate Batman bad guy, or at least the one people are most familiar with. Why didn't they do a Batman movie with Batman and Joker first before jumping into a Suicide Squad thing? Well, well why didn't they do a Batman really, and Wonder Woman movie before they did they, they, Justice League? They did Justice League because they were greedy and yeah. wanted to have their own Avengers as soon as possible. Damn the torpedoes. And I, and I think <sighs> this is the same thing. They wanted to have their bad guy Avengers before they wanted us to, before that's they wanted to do right. anything with the bad guy. I never thought yeah. of this as bad guy Avengers, but yeah, that's certainly what they're going Not for. So. And I mean, go, go on. The introduction of uh, the bat, I mean, of, um, of Batman in here, it just seems so pointless. It's like, He's barely there in terms of performance and presence. It's just like he's like this very vague framing device. Batman is just like, what's what's the point? Like, you're ruining date night. Like that line I just thought was very stupid. Um, and just yeah, that and the whole car, like, the car the car chase is fun. But the the weird the, the two things about about the Batman appearances in this movie is one, it just makes me realize how much I would have loved to have seen a Ben Affleck solo Batman movie. But Two, the when we see him apprehend Deadshot, that it, it again it seems very out of character, just cornering Deadshot with his daughter. Like ba- Batman, I know. The, 
The only children Batman endangers are his own. He doesn't endanger other people's <laughs> children. Exactly. Yeah, that just felt very out of place and just heavy-handed. I hate that child in peril shit. It's just such a it's just such an unimaginative uh, you know structuring device. I think it's just lame. Um, and just like I don't know, I think performance-wise, Will Smith is doing the best he can with this well, dialogue. Well, that's the frustrating thing is Will Smith is actually doing a great performance. He's bringing the same level of professionalism and intensity that he pretty much brings to everything he does. It's just that he doesn't have that much to work with. And like all, all we can say about his performance is that it's highly competent. Highly common, exactly. And I think the thing too is that, like, after a certain point, I just kind of felt bad for the actors because they just have to say these stupid lines of dialogue. Um, oh, the word the other- "metahuman" is put through so much abuse in this movie. That's yeah, "metahuman." Yeah. There's a titular line. I don't know if you caught it, but well, uh, Deadshot says, "What is this? Some kind of suicide squad?" Oh, I know. awful. Oh my goodness. Um, oh, and the other thing too is that, like, I just I have to touch on the Jared Leto thing if i may the the method acting all right it doesn't really pay off in my opinion and the thing is that like so if you're a method actor right it it, it means you're not playing a character you're inhabiting a character right it's that you're gonna you're gonna be them you're gonna you know you know literally live in their skin right and you heard all the stories of him like you know sending anal beads and rats to freaking margot Robbie, which i think is just kind of fucking stupid well, well um, it's, 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 it's the kind of thing that would get you combat. fired in any other industry but also like that's not the joker's fired. mo yeah I mean, no sent, definitely not yeah he, he sent like a, a a used condom a filled condom yeah to to the will smith Davis, or something yeah, I, I, I mean, don't that, think the joke would do that. And technically, that's a sex crime. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah. You should get fired for that shit. Really, like, it's fucking gross. And this is what pisses me off, though. So for all of that bullshit, you know, and also it's that fucking boys' club mentality of like, okay, because Margaret Robbie's like, you know, I didn't really rehearse with any. I rehearsed with everyone else except for Leto because he was just doing his thing, and that's fucking stupid because these characters are supposed to have chemistry and they don't have mm-hmm. any chemistry on the screen. You don't buy this great fucking Sid and Nancy romance that they're supposed to have because yeah. fucking Jared Leto was off p- pretending to be Daniel Day-Lewis or something like that. And, you know, again, it's this fucking boys club thing of like, oh, let the actor do his thing. I bet you if Margaret Robbie sent a fucking tampon to Jared Leto, she'd gotten fired. It's like you said. Yeah. Well, you know what I mean? Like, and, that, and that's more the sort of the grim irony of the Joker is that the, the Harley Quinn origin story that's in the episode of uh, the, both the, the graphic novel and the animated series episode, mad love. Like we can, because of the, what Mark Hamill brings to his performance as the Joker, we totally buy the relationship for a brief moment. We see what Harley sees in the Joker, and we understand in that moment why she is attracted to him and why she makes these terrible romantic decisions involving exactly. this man. I don't understand how anyone could could fall in love with this version of the Joker. There is, you're right, there right. is no chemistry. And it just feels more like that she's just subservient to him. You know what I mean? It's like, would you die for me? You know, it's like, or would you live for me? She's like, yes, master. And it's like, that, she's hypnotized. That whole line of like, would you die for me versus would you live for me? That could work. Right. In a better film. In its own movie. <laughs> you need, yeah. yeah it, uh, I mean, and then 
the whole ending of this movie where you get all the explosions and they're they're fighting against what's um, the the brother and sister relationship uh, thing between the enchantress and uh, the kind of um, like Mayan fire god thing going on. Like it's just visually so bland. You see all these clouds yeah. everywhere. They seem to really stress like, oh, there's no civilians around because people complained about that in Man of Steel. And I like fell asleep at one point rewatching this because during the action stuff, because it goes on forever. I don't really care about most of these characters. And it it just didn't click with me. I didn't think the bad guy was 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 good or compelling. And they're trying to make it like an ironic, like tragic, uh, the monkey, frankly, kind of story. And it, it just didn't well, there, really work for me. I, I I give Suicide Squad sequel no. Well, well, there's a number of missteps in that climax because part of it is that the Enchantress like tempts them by showing them like what she could give them in her remade world. Oh, and yeah, that was and, tired. And, and well, one, someone should go for it. There should have been a last minute betrayal and yes. one of them should have gone for it. But two, the fantasy she's offering them should have tied into their humanity. Because what's Deadshot's fantasy? It's not to be reunited with his daughter. No, it's to murder the ba- murder Batman. On the Super Nintendad's entertainment podcast, catch us grumbling about the news every Monday on the Morning Dadcast, chatting with industry professionals, and most importantly, teaching our kids just how incredible or horrible 80s and 90s video game and pop culture truly was. All right, what else you got? The Sega Slingshot. <laughs> Don't have a cow, man. <laughs> <laughs> the blast processing was really fast. Why can knuckles fly even? Tide Prawn Doe. What does that even mean? Samurai Pizza Cats. Gabe, we almost named you Guido Anchovy. <laughs> Doing a Belvedere requires a set of low hangers. <laughs> right here on Greenlit. We're the Spirit Hunters, and we're a show that treats Hunter Hunter and Yu Hakusho's author as the center of the universe. Some weeks, we do linguistic analysis. So the Chinese meaning of this character is to smelt or refine, but so the changed meaning in Japanese, it means to temper. Other times, we get absolutely smashed. So we take one shot every time. Yusuke uses the ray gun. One hour later. This is the least coherent episode. Oh, I'm Sarah, you're... Okay, I think you're firing this you can find out more about the Spirit Hunters right here on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Um, I know, and, right? and and like and the worst, the worst is Harley Quinn, who has this great line of like, "Hey, normal is a setting on a dryer," and like that—that's a great line. And it comes back because when we see her fantasy, the first thing we see is her fingertip pressing the normal setting on a dryer. But then it's just her and the Joker having wedded domestic bliss, and they're completely normal. No, it should be a fucked up version of wedded domestic bliss. Like, there should be explosions outside the window. They should be dressed like Sid. Yeah, again, they should be dressed like Sid and Nancy. Like, it's... And, like, their kids should look monstrous. Like, it should be a messed up version. I do not believe that this character wants to be June Cleaver. Um, Right. But, yeah, and then the other thing that's nuts is, okay, so... Again, another last-minute addition is Kitana, this uh, martial artist with the magic katana that eats souls. They don't really go into her background, but she's a a DC Comics character from the 80s, back when ninjas were all the rage, and who herself, well, for one, she's not a villain. She was a member of Batman and the Outsiders, which is this really fun Batman team where it's Batman leading a bunch of misfit heroes, which would also be a good movie. But in this one, like, she's just there. 
Like, she's just there. Like, why is she there? She's not part of the Suicide Squad. You know she doesn't there. have a bomb in her neck. But, you know why she's but, there? She's, but, Madonna, like, she's got my back. I'd advise not getting killed by her. Her sword traps the souls of the people she kills. That's which, why. <laughs> which even then, you'd think after she killed a few of those eyeball ash zombies, she would say, oh, they have no souls. I know, because my magic sword didn't get anything from them or something. You're right, uh, yeah. But, but the, uh, and, and like, so we don't feel bad when these things die anyway. They just seem so hollow. But, like, they, they at this point in the movie, they'd all been disarmed. So Harley Quinn goes up to the sorceress as if to say, oh, I do want to join you. But when she does her kneel, it's a fake kneel, and she grabs Katana's sword and cuts the sorceress's heart out. So, again, Katana, the woman who wields the magic soul-draining sword, doesn't even get to use it on the villain, on right. the antagonist. But also, so, like, what happened? So your magic sword, which is your weapon of choice, obviously, so it's significant, and it's got your fucking husband's soul in it. So was she just like... It's like the equivalent's like she lost her phone. It's like, where's my sword soul? Oh, I guess it's over here. Oh, darn. Yeah, I, I just lost my sword. And I guess, So I guess the sorceress's soul is now trapped in the sword? Maybe? I, sure. Does that, do, do they, is it like a roommate scenario with her, with her dead husband? Do they have to like... Well, well funnily me? enough, in the comics it is, like all the spirits in the sword can communicate with each other. Uh, see, that's the movie. That's the movie right there. I'd rather watch that. Um, well, the other thing that kind of kills me, too, is like you said, with the flashback, like Harley Quinn's like, you know, dream future is like you said, she's, you know, June Cleaver in like in all these other flashbacks. And the Harley Quinn thing is that like it's like this Nine Inch Nails video. Of, like, I'm going to electrocute you. And it's like this is the time when you should use like the fucking, you know, the Nine Inch Nails music video effects of like all the sketchy jittery in the, in the weird vision of her future. Like you said, it should be this like fucked up apocalyptic, you know, tromance, you know what I mean? But instead it's like, I guess it's trying to be funny, you know, but it's and, not. There's and their house of... should be built on top of a pile of Batman corpses, just thousands of Batman corpses. Right, yeah. This is when you go gonzo, you know. She's the one who should fantasize about killing the Batman. Yeah, and then, you know, we see a sort of happy ending where everybody got, like, their payout from the government, including Killer Croc watching BET, which is a weird... On the one hand, I love watching him watch, like, the, the music videos. Like, I love that yeah, he's so like, into it. And stuff. Yeah, But yeah, I, despite the fact that I, I do, with the exception of the Joker, I do believe this movie is flawlessly cast, and the actors are trying to do something with the material they have. I also do have to give this a sequel. No, it's just, it's just a bad dog's breakfast of a movie. And oh yeah, Alex. Um, if it wasn't already obvious, yeah, no big booming super duper sequel. No, I mean everything it tries to do mostly fails miserably. And the thing too, also, like you said, with um, you know, Croctron and everything with the BET and all the stuff with El Diablo character is just so nothing there. Kind of faintly racist a little bit. He's like a bad hombre, man. You know, like, you know, my chica. It's just I I just, oh. it left a bad taste in my mouth. I did not like it at all. But El Diablo is really the only character that truly gets an, an, an arc and who's motivated by something. And he's also he's also the only character that didn't commit any fun crimes that are fun to watch. Right. Like his whole deal is he has firepowers. He had a woman that he loved and two children that he loved. And one night he lost control of his powers and accidentally killed them all. That is something it is hard to come back to come back from. And we see him trying to come back from it in every scene, which is why oh, he yeah. refuses and to use his powers until the end. 
I agree. It's a good arc and everything, but by the time he, you know, um, by the time he manifests the full crux of his powers, it feels so unearned when he goes, I already lost one family. I'm not going to lose another. It's like, you know, you guys are family now, like fucking Fast and the Furious or something. You know what I mean? Like, this this isn't a Suicide Squad, bro. This is family. I mean, it's just, blah. I just didn't buy it at all. And, like, that's the thing. Like you said, his stakes and his story, you know, there's weight to that. And the movie really does nothing with it until the bar scene, which I, that scene, a lot of people cited as being, like, the heart of the movie. I just thought it was just tiring because it was all these stupid cliches of, like, I'm ugly on the outside and the inside. No, you're not. You're beautiful. Or you're ugly. No one likes us. And it's just reminding us. It's like, no, you're right. No one likes you. I hate you. I, I don't like you at all. I'm like, oh, fucking die, except Margot Robbie. And although, I, although I got to admit, I did love that visual where he made like the dancing woman at a fire and, and uh, on his hand and then put the beer glass on top of it. And we saw the fire kind yeah. of die down. That was a nice visual. Like some some care and thought went into that. But, like, right before he starts the story, I feel like he was, like, he might as well have said, like, this is the point in the movie where you feel a little bored. I'm kind of annoyed because it's going to get all dramatic. I'm going to bum you out. And then there's another needle drop. Getting to know you. Yeah. Know I about. Seriously. And that maybe the movie could have ended on getting to know you as the as the camera pulls out and the, <laughs> the group are kind of giving each other shit, punching each other on the shoulder. Oh, the cool, um, the cool uh, irony. Oh, you. Uh, Neil Drop would be, she's on fire. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Or uh, oh, burn, bad. baby, burn, disco and burn. <laughs> oh, Lord. Right. Or uh, oh, Firestarter by Prodigy. There you go. Oh. I'm shocked we didn't get that now that you mentioned it. I know, yeah. That see, we should have just make a movie now. Um, other other thing too is that the whole Margaret Robbie thing, like when they give her her like kit, and it's like here's like a little bikini thong thing. It was just so male gazy to the point of like, come on, guys. Like, well, well this, well, this speaks to a broader tra- a problem in most of the the DC movies is that the filmmakers are clearly, and the studio itself is clearly embarrassed by their source material, which is why they mm. had to, which is why they based this version of Harley Quinn off Debbie Harry from the late seventies and not on, you know, the character of Harley Quinn. Yeah. And the we, like see for us, we see her for a split second in the outfit from the cartoon, which looks very strange in live action. Oh, and that's it actually does, interesting, yeah. that, that flash of her in the classic costume with the Joker in that tuxedo, that is a, a perfect recreation of uh, Alex Ross. That was the perfect re- recreation of the cover Alex Ross painted oh, yeah. for the comic book that introduced Harley Quinn into the mainstream DC continuity in 1999. And, it, and it's so weird they took such care to, to recreate that iconic piece of comics art, but then the rest of the movie has contempt for it. Yeah, totally. I know, and the, the, the whole experience, it's like, it's like watching a bad stand-up comedian, like, tank on stage, but, like, he just tries to, like, overcompensate by, like, going and going, but, like, that's what this movie felt like. This is like what if Dr. T and the women was Mr. T and the women? I think it would go a little something like this. Yeah, exactly. I pity the fool who doesn't get a prescription filled. Um, it's it's like <laughs> it's like a bully punching you in the arm, being like, "Hey, get it? They're bad guys, right? Pretty cool, huh? Here's another song. Check it out. Look, they're bad guys, right? It's 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 like a guy kicking the back of your chair during the movie, like reminding right. you. Of I, the movie. 
<laughs> I, I, sh I shudder at all the needle drops in this as much as I shuddered watching the 2016 uh, Ghostbusters movie with the female cast. Um, not because of the cast, but because over half of the needle drops were just covers of the Ghostbusters song. Well, yeah, the, 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 by Fall Out Boy, right? Um, that's one of them. The over half the soundtrack is covers. Now that I think of it, it's oh, boy. quite something. Well, at least Bobby Brown was cut a check, I guess. Yeah, exactly. uh, he didn't do the Ghostbusters song. He did. Uh, oh, oh shit! No, who did the Ghostbusters theme? Ray Lewis uh, Jr. Or Ray, Ray Parker, Parker Jr. Yeah, okay, Ray Parker, Parker Jr. was cut a check. Yeah. I know that because of my awesome cover version on my YouTube channel, The Trailer Project, sung to the tune of George Custer. But but dig into the uh, sequel cast two archives. We did do a, a good, uh, a pretty good episode about the Ghostbusters recent Ghostbusters film. Long time with the yeah with the BJ who comes on uh, occasionally. Yeah, it's, it's and I figure that, that was, I, I figure when it comes out in three years, we'll do Ghostbusters Afterlife too. Lord, <laughs> yeah, that's been delayed. I'm. Uh, can't say I'm excited for it. I'm interested, but the delays have been a little tiring. And uh, guess what? With the Delta variant, as the time of this recording, there's going to be more delays. <laughs> so, Surprise. Um, well, our we, our we podcast need... will be a chronicle of this dark era. Uh, yeah, future historians will yeah. listen. Um, well, let's um, let's move on. I don't think we have time for pitch a sequel, but uh, so let's move on to another Suicide Squad. There you go. Yeah, right. Uh, what you're watching? I watched something on. Uh, I didn't mean to watch the whole movie, but I ended up staying up and watching it. I watched a movie. It's actually a, a sequel, technically, but it's the kind of sequel that's just a sequel because it's based on the same book as what came before it, but it's different characters. Anyway, I'm talking about uh, a movie based on the James Missioner book Hawaii, called The Hawaiians, starring Charlton Heston as Whip Hawksworth, and it also <laughs> stars a, a younger Mako in a supporting role has anyone ever seen this no yeah it's on hulu it's like an ultra wide screen presentation uh picture looks pretty not a lot of they filmed it in hawaii it appears or if not some other island area but it, it's very pretty and um i mean whip hawksworth is like the perfect charlton heston character name and oh, definitely. he he goes and you know falls in in it is a bit um, deeper than I thought it was going to be. It really goes into uh, how a lot of Chinese immigrants were used to do plantation work on Hawaii. And it's about um, Charlton Heston is kind of the black sheep of the family, but he, along with uh, the natives and some people that he meets, is responsible for uh, getting the uh, pineapple uh, plant out of French Guiana and planting it in Hawaii where it flourishes and makes him a, a wealthy man. So if you, if you feel like an old kind of slightly stodgy historical epic about pineapples, you could do worse than watch the Hawaiians. Ooh. Scored by Henry Mancini. The movie that takes place before this is Hawaii, but it's um, because James Mishner novels are more like a series of, of novellas separated by time, they're historical fiction. Uh, you don't need to see one to watch the other. <clears throat> so there we go. Um, oh, and to make things worth, worst in that movie, um, the Charlton Heston's wife, uh, played by Geraldine Chaplin's name is Purity Hawksworth. 
And so he's, there's a lot of dialogue of people yelling whip and purity um, to each other, which is, to me, quite funny. All right. Uh, Alex, what have you been watching? I uh, I watched a, a twofer. Um, so Zhang Yimou, fear one of uh, you know the best directors of the um, of the mainland China uh, Chinese cinema, um, you know director of Hero and uh, that great Matt Damon flick, The The Great Wall. Um, I did two films in to- the this past year. Um, one of them, Cliff Walkers, which is like this ripping badass. Very, very complicated uh, spy espionage yarn. Very, very fascinating film. Very much critical of, uh, you know, Chinese government policies. Um, also, but he did another film called One Second, which is what I'd like to talk about. Um, mm. It's about out in the outskirts of, uh, of rural provincial provincial uh, China, very kind of remote uh, districts, um, very much run by a ragtag council of, you know, volunteer communist workers and and, and uh you know, volunteer police, uh, a kind of derelict man comes into town because they're screening a film. And um, this kind of like, you know, ragamuffin uh, orphan child steals a reel from the movie. And then they start chasing each other. And you're trying to find out why this kind of, you know, starving child is trying to steal a movie reel. And then why this kind of, you know, you know, ratty bum dude is, is so tirelessly pursuing her. And what happens is that, you have this unfurling of like the Chinese cultural revolution and also the dire circumstances in which these people lived before and after uh, this pivotal time in Chinese history. And also this very, very staggering uh, commentary, not just on the power of cinema, but also on the power of, um, for better or worse, the power of, um, you know, Chinese com- communism and uh, the, the the misconstrued uh, socialist policies that were enforced back then, and now um, you know damning they can be, as well as um, uh, it's a it's a fascinating film. I can't speak too highly of it. It's called One Second, directed by Zhang Yimou. Um Very very potent stuff. Very wild stuff. Uh, right now, it's probably my favorite thing I've seen all year, and it's probably going to stay that way for a while. So yeah, check that out. And um, did you watch it on a streaming service, or you just order? You just had the disc in the house, or I uh, I was able to order it through some uh, sources of mine. Nice. Yeah, it's um, it can be tricky tracking some of that stuff down. Sometimes, even though we do have a lot more streaming services than before. It, um, yeah, it's hard because there's a lot of good Asian streaming services and European streaming services we can't get here just for whatever reasons. Oh, I bet. I bet. Uh, it's it's funny what they decide to bring over there and what isn't. And what usually comes out in the States of um, Asian cinema in particular is often censored in some way. Not censored, but it's not the original cut. Oh, yeah. Oh, and the thing, too, though, is that the Cliff Walkers, the spy film, you know, it's got a very, very, um, you know, anti-fascist, um, you know, narrative, it's very overtly um, anti, anti-communist and very much, uh, you know, it's got, you know, very uh, graphic depictions of torture and, and strong-arm policies, which are very consistent with things that are going on in the mainland right now. Um, and you hear about all this controversy with the latest Song of Mo films, and it's not that one that's actually in hot water it's this one the the, the film about uh the uh village screening the um chinese propaganda film it's a it's a it's a there's a lot going on here there's mm. a lot to unpack 
and it's understandably controversial. You wouldn't think so at first. You, you think they got it wrong. You know, they got the wrong title, but it's actually uh, there's a lot more going on to it. It's a great film. Neat. I'll have to check that out. Sounds pretty neat. Uh, spiffy. Um, got my brain's still waking up. That coffee needs to kick in. Uh, Thrasher. <laughs> All right. So, uh, and I don't remember if I'd already brought this up. So if I did, tell me I've got to back up. But I watched a sequel. Uh, I watched The War of the Gargantuas. Oh. Oh, this that is, a- is a kaiju movie. Is one of Brad Pitt's favorite movies when he was a kid. Not and, just Brad Pitt, Quentin Tarantino, Tim oh, sure, Burton, yeah. Guillermo del Toro, Brad Pitt. How much, um, what is the, the sequel to, is it a sequel to Baragon or? No, uh, it is a sequel to Frankenstein Conquers the World, which does feature the monster Baragon. Gotcha, okay. So That's yes, fun. this is a Frankenstein sequel. Uh, and so it's it's uh, written and directed by Ishiro Honda and yeah, it's just to show how it connects. So Frankenstein conquers the world. For those of you who haven't seen it, short version is, turns out the Frankenstein story happened. But when Frankenstein's monster was destroyed, his heart survived. And his heart ended up in a Nazi laboratory in World War II. The Nazis couldn't do anything with it. So as a gesture of, of good, bad will, they, the Nazis gave it to their allies in the Imperial Japanese government. It ended up locked up in a lab. That lab happened to be in the city of Hiroshima. So that when the atomic bomb went off over Hiroshima, the radiation caused the heart to grow a new body. And it became this Frankenstein caveman child. And it kept growing and it eventually fights a dinosaur and it eventually dies. So in this sequel... Uh, it is theorized that because the young Frankenstein cells continued to grow, it didn't die at the end. It got ripped into two chunks, and one chunk regenerated into a good giant Frankenstein gargantua, and the other fell into the ocean and regenerated into an evil giant Frankenstein gargantua. And so they are, for all intents and purposes, brothers, and so you have... One evil kaiju eating people, and he really does eat people, and just smashing Mm -hmm. cities and laying waste to the works of man. And then you have a good (laughs) kaiju who's not only trying to stop him, but is trying to stop him with love. Like, Mm. there is some amazing suit acting in this. Unlike a lot of kaiju suits, you can see the actor's eyes, so you get a lot of good eye acting and emoting. (laughs) And... That it's, that it's essentially, it's the good kaiju is trying to rehabilitate his evil brother, but then keeps getting caught in the crossfire whenever the Japanese self-defense force tries to take out the evil one. And and it is, it is such an unconventional kaiju movie in that way, but it also speaks to the fact that going forward, kaiju, from this point forward, kaiju are going to start getting more defined personality traits. And, you know, Godzilla will start behaving in a way that is distinct from Mothra because of their personalities. And they will both behave in a way that is distinct from Rodan because Rodan will have a definite personality. It really is an amazing, it's a very well-directed movie. There's some amazing practical effects and some really artistic shots. There's an amazing shot where, like, this fishing boat, something, its nets get caught on something, and they're trying to figure out what. And then it cuts to this great shot looking down on the ocean where you can see the boat, but then you can also see the kaiju just under the surface looking up at the boat. Cool. Oh, and, and a musical number, inexplicably a musical number in the middle of the movie. Ah. 
Because the words get caught in my throat. He said it was directed by Ishiro Honda of the original Godzilla fame. Ishiro Honda, although although he has a co-writing credit with Takeshi uh, Kimura. It's okay. one of those that's um, trickier to find. I was into collect. I need to actually put them on the Plex server, but um, I was collecting a bunch of the Godzilla era kaiju Toho movies uh, well, a few years ago, and that one it uh, its big release in the U.S. on DVD was a, a double feature of that in Rodan, and that's selling on eBay for like almost two hundred dollars. Oh wow! Oh shit! If if you have HBO Max, it is available on their uh, with their Criterion cool. movies. Nice, very cool. Did that get a Criterion release? I get sort of confused what HBO Max calls Criterion stuff sometimes uh, I because think it's also it the Criterion I, I channel. It, did it? I yeah. believe it did get a Criterion release. The they released the Showa era of uh, the Godzilla films. Recently, yeah, with that box that you can't fit on any shelf. Oh, yeah, in 2017, yeah. Janus and the Criterion Collection uh, did a did a, did a a release of it. How about yeah. that? Cool. God, I just reminded me of working uh, retail and a customer specifically wanting the Criterion edition of Silence of the Lambs, which we charged the full retail price of $39.99 on DVD for. <laughs> I actually still have that DVD. It's basically a glorified laser disc. It's <laughs> there's nothing mm-hmm. really to it. A lot those of those really crazy releases were pretty. Or yeah, yeah. Um, agreed. So let's go and uh, do the sequel scene. This has more than three characters. So um, Thrasher, why don't you set up the stage and. Uh, then we can pick who plays what and do the scene. All right. So this is uh, this is when they are in the bar, kind of having their moment of character exposition, and you know, just just, just talking about each other. All right. Uh, I'll do I'll do Harley. Okay. And what? Uh, how many characters is this? Um, I think there's five total. Okay. So how about Alex and I do two apiece, and you just do Harley? Does that sound fair? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Who fine. do you want? Who do you want to be, Alex? I'll be Killer Croc. I get I get a second one. Yep. Ooh, I'll do Killer Croc and Katana. I'll do Katana because they're so. Okay, I'll do Captain Boomerang and Deadshot, and they're all at a bar, kind of talking. Okay. I'll do Killer Croc. Okay. What you having, Casey? Bloody Mary, right? Drink dulls the mind. Okay, see, it's the end of the world. Have a drink with us. Beer. There he is. Give the man a beer. How about you, hot stuff? Water. <laughs> That's a good idea, honey. Pour his water. Hey, Ninja, you want some sake? Whiskey. Whiskey. What am I, 12? <laughs> so that, that gives you some idea of the sparkling dialogue. Yes. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd like to point out, too, I think it's kind of odd for a, I'm no prude, but having suicide in the title of your movie and have it rated PG-13 is kind of weird. Well, suicide yeah. is painless. It brings it, on it, many it goes changes. Through, it brings on many changes, and it was written by 
uh, Altman's Altman. son, who made teenage the son. lyrics were written by Altman's teenage son, who made more money off the royalties to that song than Altman ever did from the movie. Wow. Yep. Well, that's true. So it became the theme song for a TV show. He would have to, he would get a cut oh, of that yep. check every time an episode. That later. kid retired at age 22. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. But yeah, when I learned that trivia, I'm like, wow, I can believe it. Because not only that, it's one of the more covered um, songs of, of all time, it feels like. It, I know the, the now main with the Right, yeah, I mean, Extreme Street Preachers is a good version. I mean, it, it, it's one of those with the current trend of all movie trailers having a, a cover be sad and slow uh, that they've done a few times in trailers. Through early uh, they do morning skies, I see. I don't know what the hell that voice was. Okay, next time we're doing a sequel, <laughs> The Suicide Squad from 2021. <laughs> and after that, we'll go back to our regularly scheduled programming looking at uh, The Shining with the Kubrick, with the Mick Garris miniseries, and uh, Doctor Sleep, the sequel that did not do as well as people wanted in the theaters. All that fun stuff. So um, for sequel... I almost said sequel cast special. So for sequel cast uh, two, shit, I got to promote stuff. Um, follow me at M-A-T-W-B-T, and you can listen to us at anchor.fm. Uh, leave a review on the Apple Podcast app. We would love to hear what people think, because I am a sucker for feedback. Uh, Thrasher. All right, so my social media is still in flux, but if you want to show your love, go to Kickstarter. Look up at the Shrine of Authoris, O-T-H-R-Y-S. That is Skirmisher Publishing's new Kickstarter for a Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition campaign that they're producing. I am the official cartographer for this campaign, so I will be doing the big dungeon map for it and be it, you know, should we fill out our stretch goals? I will also be doing maps for uh, side quest dungeons and special encounter areas. So uh, if you want to help me get some more map commissions, look up at the Shrine of Authoris on Kickstarter and back that Kickstarter. Ooh. O-T-H-R-Y-S. And Alex... You can find me on the Twitter at CrabNebula1914. Also drop by my YouTube channel, y'all. It's called The Trailer Project, where we do the we does the trailer commentaries and then some experimental video stuff. I don't know if everybody likes it, but I sure have fun making it. Check it out. It's called The Trailer Project. Also, our theme music is written and performed by Mark with the C. Check out all of his stuff at markwiththec.com. Very I like his and, music. And- that's right. Everyone should buy all his albums several times a day. And um, on the topic of Suicide Squad, I'll be doing a live version of Sequel Cast 2 as a live podcast panel called Ranking the DCEU with uh, my friends out here in Portland, Oregon, nice. uh, with uh, Eric. Uh, Eric Winsor, Tony Mincent, and Sean Christopher Franson will be uh, have our panel on Sunday, September 12th. At uh, from three to three forty-five in room E one forty-five and one forty-six, so uh, come. There will be uh, a chance to win some silly prizes, which is a thing I do at all my my panels uh, around town in Portland to get people to show up, and it works. Although sometimes I get to see kids have tears in their eyes because they don't get prizes, so that's always fun. 
Um, more information, rowcitycomiccon.com. Again, that's Sunday, September 12th at, uh, from 3 to 3.45 p.m., live SQLcast 2 panel on ranking the DCEU. Last time we did a panel a few years ago, um, I forget if it was Rose City or not, but we ranked the Marvel films. And uh, when I did the math, people, um, some people got pretty upset. Black Panther was not number one. It was uh, Guardians of the Galaxy in our unofficial ranking. Oh. It, it, is, it is interesting because of, of, of all the movies, those two probably do have the most going on. Yeah. Where, yep. did, where did Black Panther land if it wasn't number one? I think it was in the top three. Might have been number two. Hey, that's great. That's not bad. Come on. No, no. But one of the one of my friends I did it with like stood up and said, I don't agree with this ranking. <laughs> when it wasn't announced at number one, which I thought was pretty funny because I don't I, I didn't cheat on the math, but like I don't share I, I like to have the element of surprise for everyone else as far as what ranks yeah, were. Um because it's live, you have some juice there. All right, cool. So for sequel cast two, this is Matt. <laughs> this is Thrasher. This is Alex. Same. Enchantress. Hey, we're a Suicide Squad. We're doing stuff. It's pretty wild. Check us out, man. Whoa, a baseball bat and a story, I doing, think. Mr. How you doing, Mr. J? Can I have some of your Smilex? That looks pretty good. I, I got to forewarn you. I am known to be very vexing. I would like I to give you some you pudding or something. Oh. <laughs> It puts the pudding in the basket.